Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Joseph Humeyer, Executive Director of the Center for a Secure, Free Society and Writing Fellow here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss Iran's tightening hold on Latin America. Mr. Humeyer will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Joseph Humeyer. Thanks, Stacey. Just uh, really quickly, just to make sure everyone can hear me, make sure I don't have any audio visual. I think I get the high sign. Coming in clear. Okay, thank you. Um, well, first, uh, first of all, good morning uh, or good afternoon. Uh, thank you to everybody for connecting. Thank you to the Middle East Forum for uh, organizing the webinar and, and obviously for inviting me. It's always been a, a privilege to be able to partner with the Middle East Forum on a lot of these issues and also learn from the work that the, the forum has done on, on pressing challenges in the Middle East. And uh, my work specifically focuses on the other side of the world, but it's uh, intricately connected to the Middle East as I've focused for the last decade or so on Iran and Hezbollah's uh, intrusion into Latin America, to the Western Hemisphere. And it's a topic that if we go back 10 years ago, I think was much more of a fringe topic and I admit it was a bit of a niche topic. Uh, many, uh, even Iran watchers uh, looked at it uh, on its periphery, but uh, over time, and I think specifically in the last few years, it's got a lot more attention uh, specifically for its very overt and visible actions in Venezuela. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so what I'd like to do for the next 15 or so minutes before we get into Q&A, so I'd like to give you a little bit of the lessons that I've learned from this decade of research on Iran uh, presence and activities in Latin America, and perhaps even anticipate a few of the questions that might be coming down from, from the audience and, and trying to answer it the best I can uh, in, in a succinct amount of time. So, so I'll go ahead and begin. Let me start with, the, I'm going to make five points throughout my initial remarks. And, and the first point, and I think this is something that uh, oftentimes is lost among some policymakers in the U.S., uh, and certainly among policymakers in Latin America, which is that Iran, Iran has a long-term vision for Latin America. Uh, their presence in the region is, is certainly not new. Uh, it did not just begin with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, and it's not just a 21st century uh, initiative. It actually began pretty much at the dawn of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, uh, very shortly after they decided to come into Latin America. I think they quickly realized that this was a strategic theater for exporting the revolution for, for two reasons. Uh, the first is because they, I think, understood, and I say they, I mean the Iranian uh, regime, the Islamic Republic, understood that the United States is, is perhaps one of its biggest, if not its biggest obstacle to its uh, plans to export a, a global revolution. And uh, because the United States is a big obstacle, and I think that that was just confirmed for Iran over time with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they've been uh, in an effort to diminish its geographic disadvantage with the United States. They, now, they can't do what uh, the United States can do in terms of conventional military force. They can't project aircraft carriers into the Caribbean, per se. Uh, so they've been uh, erecting an asymmetric presence. They've been doing it very stealthily, uh, very quietly, but very very uh, sustainably. They've been doing it for a long time. And I think we started to first see remnants of Iranian uh, presence in Latin America in terms of its um, 
intelligence and its military uh, elements uh, going back to 1981. So, so this has a, a quite a bit of longevity. Um, the uh, second part to this is the re second reason I think the Iran's looked at Latin America as a strategic theater uh, is because uh, there have historically always been prominent uh, Lebanese, uh, also Syrian and, and, and other Arab populations in Latin America that I think are natural to Iran's conquest in the Middle East. So their ability to be have influence in the Arab world, namely in Syria, Iraq, and, and Lebanon, uh, is also uh, uh, leveraged through its ability to have influence in Arab populations in Latin America. And for this, obviously, Hezbollah is a is a big partner in that effort. So I'll get I'll talk about Hezbollah in a second. Um, and so Iran's had this long term vision for Latin America. It's been there for arguably about forty years, and and the the only good news from this really is that it's given us a large data set to study. Uh, so we've been able to look at that and data that's not always easy to come by because you have to kind of get through some of the the disinformation and, and perhaps some of the, uh, the, the, the hidden aspects of their presence. But once you do that, you can have a data set that will allow you to understand a, a, a strategy per se. And this is a point of an article I recently published for the leading military magazine of U.S. Southern Command, which is the combatant command uh, responsible for Latin America and the Caribbean at the Department of Defense. And uh, the article was titled, Iran's uh, Pattern of Penetration in Latin America. And that term, pattern of penetration, is essentially a systematic but sustained look at Iran's empirical activities throughout these 40 years. And what I've done through that is I've elaborated a conceptual model that's presented in the article that shows that there's a, a multi-dimensional, but also a multi-phase aspect to how Iran operates in the region, meaning that it starts at a certain level, usually at an informal level, and it gradually builds step by step to be able to get to a formal presence and more specifically to even a military presence in Latin America. Uh, this pattern of penetration is, is essentially begins at the religious and cultural level. And, and I think there's a point to be made on that. And, and this is a bit distinct from how it's done it in the Middle East. It's very similar in terms of its asymmetric approach. But it's a bit distinct in terms of the sales pitch. Uh, obviously, the the same rhetoric that Iran uses in the Middle East, talking about the uh, Islamic aspects of its revolution, or the you know the talking about the twelfth Imam and things like that, they, they do that in Latin America, but it perhaps isn't their entry point. In fact, when they come to Latin America, Iran looks at it much more, uh, or they emphasize much more the social aspects of the revolution. Uh, characterizing the Iranian revolution as one that was a social movement that was lifted up to protect natural resources. Uh, you know, obviously, and they're referring to the British Petroleum at the time in the 70s. So uh, when you come to Latin America and you describe it that way, not as an, uh, a theocratic or Islamist uh, element regime, but if you describe it as a social movement protecting natural resources, that's going to open up more doors than you would think in Latin America. And so that's been a sort of their sales pitch to come into the region. And this gets me to my second point. So after these 40 years, Iran has a level of influence, strategic influence in Latin America. In some countries, it's much more profound than in others. And I think one of those countries that it's very profound and that, you know, obviously is very visible now, as I mentioned, is in Venezuela. And, and what we've seen recently uh, is this uh, sort of uh, influx 
of a commercial presence inside Venezuela, which includes uh, upwards of 2.35 million barrels of uh, fuel of gasoline that Iran's provided to Venezuela in 2020 during the pandemic. And I think uh, uh, closer to 1.7 million barrels in 2021. Uh, and as well as the launching of a uh, array of commercial endeavors inside Venezuela, including its first supermarket. Iran has its first uh, state-owned supermarket called Megasis uh, inside, Caracas, in, inside Caracas, in, in Caracas, which I understand is, the, is a retail chain in, from Iran. But I think in this, uh, it's important to emphasize that Iran historically, since we have this data set to look at, Iran historically has used both commercial and cultural exchange in Latin America as a cover for its mil military ambitions as well as its terror support activity. So I'm going to give an example of this uh, very briefly, which is uh, uh, related to the, to the most infamous episode of Iran in Latin America, uh, which is the 1994 AMI attack. I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with that attack in Argentina that killed 85 people and injured hundreds more. One of the aspects that's less uh, discussed about that terrorist attack in Argentina in the 1990s is the terror finance element. And so this was interesting in the sense that Iran in the 1980s, particularly in the late 80s, the only commercial link it had to Latin America was in the beef trade. In fact, by 1987, uh, upwards of 70% of the domestic consumption of beef inside Iran came from Argentina. And that was not uh, abnormal. Argentina was one of the largest beef uh, exporters in the world. And we probably have all eaten an Argentine steak at some point in our life. It's not so much anymore, but it was back in the 80s. Um, and instead of enjoying that privileged trade relationship, that privileged commercial relationship with Argentina, one of the top beef exporters in the world, what the Islamic Republic of Iran decided to do was to exploit that commercial relationship to be able to insert spies, subversive actors, and others to be able to create finance and logistical mechanisms to support the terrorist attack in the early 90s, in 92 and 94. And one, one of the ways they did this was because they augmented their presence at their embassy through uh, cultural attaches. Now, had it been just for the commercial aspect of it, they would, if they said, let's say they would have added 10 business attaches to their embassy when they only have three or four state-owned enterprises, it might have drawn a red flag from the Argentine foreign ministry, meaning the Argentine foreign ministry might have denied some of the business visas of these Iranian personnel. But because they attached these this personnel as cultural attaches that were tied to the uh, certification of these beef companies' exports to Iran, meaning that any beef export that would go from Argentina to Iran had to pass a certification process known as halal, which means process, as you well know, uh, uh, under Islamic guidance, uh, that they these cultural attaches were responsible for that certification. And since Argentina had very little understanding at the time, and probably to this day, about halal certification, they kind of accepted these increase of diplomatic personnel, which included mostly cultural attaches, augmenting that embassy to the point that I think at one point it had close to 60, quote unquote, uh, diplomats operating in the embassy in Buenos Aires. That was the cover platform and eventually the logistical mechanism that was used to carry out the AMI attack in Argentina. So a clear precedent of using commercial exchange as a cover for terrorist support activity. 
So now that we're hearing about gasoline shipments and supermarkets in Venezuela, the natural question is, what are they covering now? And, and it obviously likely be more of the same. Which leads me to my third point, which is the, the role of Hezbollah in this. And Hezbollah has a major role in facilitating Iran's presence and advancement in Latin America, much like it does in the, in the Middle East, but mostly because of Hezbollah's role in transnational organized crime. I think most of us that understand Hezbollah will watch Hezbollah's activities over time. We understand it as a, what it is, a terrorist organization. Uh, however, uh, over time, Hezbollah has become entrenched in the world of drug trafficking and money laundering in particular. Other elements of organized crime as well, but specifically those two. And in that, they essentially made a, a, a quite a bit of a, a, of, a, of a presence in the elements of being able to launder the illicit proceeds of major drug cartels from Mexico to Colombia, to Brazil, to Paraguay, to Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, and, and many other countries in, in between. Uh, some Another uh, prominent expert uh, that studies Iran and Hezbollah in Latin America has once dubbed them as sort of the Western Union of the drug cartels in, in Latin America, meaning that they have very efficient ways of moving money through Africa, Middle East, and even into Europe, where a lot of the drug cartels are pushing their products into, into Europe. Uh, in that, I think there's a theory, or it's more than a theory now, but it's a concept that I think is worth explaining a little bit, uh, that it describes Hezbollah's uh, uh, evolution to, to maintaining a terrorist organization, but blending it with organized crime, and it's the concept of threat convergence which threat convergence means that while criminals and terrorists may not have the same strategic objectives, meaning that they're not after the same purposes, they have intricate connections in the area of logistics. Uh, in, in, in defense lingo, they call these the three Fs, the financiers, the facilitators, and the fixers. These are the middlemen that are essentially the glue that allows uh, illicit networks to thrive and illicit economies to grow. Uh, in that, Hezbollah is the master of that Middle East networking in Latin America, meaning these Lebanese uh, and Syrian and other Arab diasporas that are prominent in the region are being increasingly co-opted by Hezbollah uh, by embedding them into these uh, crime terrorist convergence networks that they've been proliferating throughout the region. I wrote a paper about this at the Atlantic Council that's uh, is available on the internet called uh, the Maduro and Hezbollah Nexus, where I described the threat convergence and, and put a little bit of more detail as to how Hezbollah specifically operates inside Venezuela. And this moves me to my, my fourth point, and I think maybe perhaps one of the questions that some folks in the audience uh, would have, which is, uh, what is the end game? Like, what is Iran actually trying to achieve in Latin America? How far is this going to go? Are they going to launch a terrorist attack against the United States? Are they going to uh, build a, a missile capability endogenous to Latin America? Um, what, what is the end game here? And I think you can look at tactical threats and, and even strategic threats, but you can look at it from a very uh, compartmentalized view and looking at specific threat networks and what those can eventually lead to if they... Uh, continue to grow uh, along the same trend line. But I want to bring this a little bit out and look at it from a 50,000 foot level and provide you with some just basic, like, what's the big goal here? And I think in order to understand that, we have to first understand that Iran, while I mentioned they've been around in Latin America for 40 years, their biggest period of growth 
happened at the turn of the century, from literally from 2000 to 2010, the first decade, because during that period, they pegged themselves to a political phenomenon in Latin America, which was called the pink tide. It was essentially a wave of populist, socialist, and later authoritarian leaders in Latin America that dominated the region for over a decade. They lost some steam in the second decade, but they're actually resurging right now, which we've seen in elections in Peru, Chile, Honduras, and elsewhere. And this uh, pink tide uh, brought people like, obviously, uh, when Hugo Chavez was the first in 1999, right before the turn of the century, but it brought people like Evo Morales in Bolivia, Daniel Ortega, the second, second time into power in Nicaragua, uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, the Kirshners in Argentina, uh, Lula da Silva, and then Delma Rousseff in the Pete in Brazil, uh, Sanchez Serena in El Salvador, and eventually led to Lopez Obrador becoming the president in Mexico. And what Iran did is they pegged themselves to the core element of the pink tide, which was an alliance called the Bolivarian Alliance, uh, or ALBA is his name and his acronym. Uh, and, and Iran was an observing member of ALBA since the very early days and continues to this day. And because of that, Iran has invested into the Bolivarian states, which are namely Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, and Bolivia, and has allowed themselves to grow or, or enables themselves to grow their influence in Latin America as long as these regimes, autocratic regimes, grow their power and presence in the region. So in that, if you understand that their ambitions in Latin America are intricately tied to this Bolivarian alliance, these Bolivarian states in Latin America, like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Bolivia, then you have to say that their end game is essentially the same end game of Venezuela or the same end game of Bolivia. And what that end game is, is to turn Latin Americans against the United States. That's fundamentally there. Beyond the terrorism and the missiles and whatever else that they can uh, achieve in the process, it's essentially they want to turn a region that historically has been very hospi hospitable to the United States, given we're the, one of the largest trade partners in the region. Uh, we've had many demographic, cultural, even religious ties to Latin America over time. They want to turn it inhospitable uh, to Americans and to, into the United States as a whole. And part of their biggest weapon, one of their most potent weapons to do this is through disinformation. And I think that's largely ignored when we talk about Iran's presence in Latin America or in just globally in general, is how much better Iran has gotten at uh, very sophisticated disinformation campaigns that they're doing worldwide. One of the biggest examples I think is, is Soleimani, is, is the death of the Quds Force General Soleimani. And they this is a quote taken from the Ayatollah Khamenei about uh, what that means for them now and how they're exploiting that to, for their strategic ends. Uh, where he was quoted in a tweet saying that Soleimani the martyr is more dangerous to the United States, Israel, and the West than Soleimani the general. And I think that they really believe that, and we're seeing evidence of this in Latin America, where Soleimani is essentially being promoted as a sort of Iranian Che Guevara that was fighting against terrorism, crime, and injustices around the world. This gets intensified every year on the anniversary of Soleimani's death every January 3rd. It was, you know, just happened uh, a little less than a month ago. Uh, but it's 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 part of a very robust effort of using soft power and sharp power to essentially shift the orbit along with its partners in Latin America, where Latin Americans essentially start to believe this false narrative 
that Soleimani is somewhat uh, a hero for peace. And I think that that, uh, while maybe seem a little bit far-fetched for some, uh, should not be underestimated because I think that that's one of their most potent weapons in all of it that they're doing. So what's next? And, and I, I think I, you know we'll end with this and we could open up some questions. So what's next? So aside from the this kind of big, broad uh, meta and, ma and macro effort to turn Latin Americans against the United States, I think uh, more specifically, uh, what Iran is 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 doing in Latin America, and I think what it's uh, what kind of dovetails with uh, efforts of other external state actors such as Russia and China, is this uh, effort to essentially challenge U.S. partners in the region through uh, asymmetric conflicts. Uh, these conflicts could come through borders, through intensity and pressure on borders, both physical land borders, but also maritime borders in the water. And it could also come through national protests and things that essentially destabilize the country from within. Now, this is not to say that Iran is, is, is actively involved in those efforts, but they are absolutely capitalizing on what happens in those uh, efforts. Colombia is a great example of this because Colombia went through an intense period of national protest last year. And through the work we've done at SFS, we will discover not that Iran was in, uh, behind the protests, but they capitalized on the protests to insert those false narratives and exacerbate some of these tensions that are happening inside the country. And on the other side of that, which is you know beyond the internal, what's happening along the borders, I think we have to pay a lot of attention to uh, Iran's ability to supply its partners in Latin America with advanced uh, weaponry, uh, namely drones, uh, that are a, a sort of a, a, an asymmetric equalizer on the battlefield. And they uh, are already they've already provided this to Venezuela's Maduro regime, but these drones, the use of the drones isn't just to be able to drop, you know, uh, to have attacks and drop bombs on on adversaries. It's 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 an effort to essentially provoke uh, militaries in the neighborhood at overreacting to uh, incursions along the borders. Now the Russians are very good at this too, and the Russian drones are also in Venezuela. But I'd say that the Russian effort is focused largely on the land borders, and specifically in the case of Venezuela, the land border between Venezuela and Colombia. The Iranian drones, I think, are going to be more focused on the maritime borders. And this goes to, I think, one of Iran's strengths was its, its asymmetric naval capabilities, the, the amphibious operations that it's done and continues to do in the Straits of Hormuz, in the Persian Gulf, in the Gulf of Oman, the ability that it, 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 to harass oil tankers, uh, even in the case of U.S. naval vessels, and provoke uh, conflicts that it later exploits and tries to victimize itself through its false narratives and its disinformation. That kind of hybrid strategy is what I think they're bringing to Latin America. Uh, and in this case, their proxy would be the Maduro regime, who would uh, essentially uh, uh, implement that sort of strategy in, in the Caribbean. So I think that's something to, to look out for. It's not happening quite yet, but uh, it, it's on the horizon as the Iranian drones have already arrived in Venezuela. Thank you so much. We have, we have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is from Jay Lewis. This seems like an insurmountable problem for the US. Is our government doing anything effective about it? So of course, it, it's, it's quite a challenge. I would agree. I don't want to say it's insurmountable, but a um, couple of things, I guess, uh, two things of note. Um, and I think this is where we should place more pressure on the US government to continue some of these things. So part of this effort at being able to isolate Iran's advancements in Latin America is driven around creating a narrative about Iran in Latin America. 
Now, part of the, I think, successful uh, efforts by the Trump administration, the previous government in the United States, was at uh, labeling Hezbollah as a foreign terrorist organization. So one of the ways that, you know, as I mentioned, Hezbollah is very key for Iran to advance in Latin America because it has all the connections to these Lebanese and Arab diasporas. And one of the things that had been lacking was any understanding of Hezbollah in the Latin America context. Most Latin America countries and policy and policymakers only understood Hezbollah as a Lebanese political party or as a social movement right out of Lebanon that really isn't active in Latin America, it's more active in the Middle East and might do some fundraising in the region. Well, that narrative started to get challenged and changed when the U.S., along with our partners in the region, began to take a more serious look at Hezbollah and be able to, in countries that saw that this was a problem, designated Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. That not only created a synergy of communication among counterterrorism professionals, both in the United States and the world with these Latin American countries, but established this narrative around Hezbollah, which affects Iran. Because if Hezbollah is ostracized in Latin America as a negative thing, basically something that you don't want to be involved with, and this is specifically important for these Lebanese communities, if they realize that Hezbollah is bad for them, just like they are in Lebanon, bad for them in their Lebanese communities in Latin America, then that's going to make it harder for Iran to advance in its efforts. So that's one. And and the second thing I think is something that the U.S. government, well, I wouldn't say the U.S. government, I said the U.S. Southern Command, the, the military uh, component of the government is increasingly understanding is that Iran, at least in the case of Latin America, is working in tandem with Russia and China. So their efforts are essentially synchronized. And you see this mostly in the area of disinformation. Like whenever uh, uh, Iran puts out a, a, a narrative, whether it's about the nuclear negotiations or about new, what saying U.S. sanctions or whatever, it's echoed almost immediately by China, by Russia, by Cuba, by Venezuela, and they provide that echo chamber at being able to uh, promote these narratives inside the region. Um, but that extends beyond the disinformation. I think we're starting to see some joint commercial and even joint uh, military cooperation in the region, particularly in the case of Venezuela. And I think that this is something the United States has to get really smart about because the Caribbean uh, could end up becoming much more of a hostile re hostile territory in terms of water uh, if Iran continues to advance on that effort. So um, I don't want to say it's insurmountable, but it's uh, the clock is ticking. And the longer this waits, the, the at one point it may become insurmountable for the United States. Understood. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Orlo asks, uh, you were speaking about how Iran was penetrating the, uh, the Arab communities there in Latin America. Uh, but he asks, how does Iran or Hezbollah cope with the fact that there's an overwhelming Christian majority in South America? Isn't that also an insurmountable gap? Yeah, so this is interesting. You know, Iran, instead of pushing up against the the growing Christian communities inside Latin America, even within the Arab populations, there's a lot of Arab Christians. And remember the historic migration were Maronite Christians that were per fleeing persecution during the Ottoman era. So um, that's a real thing. But instead of uh, clashing with that, what the Iranians have done is they've uh, uh, created an uh, ecumenical approach to projecting themselves inside Latin America. So their narrative isn't that they're against Christians or they're against Catholics or they're, which, you know, Catholics is the predominant re re religion in Latin America. Their, uh, their narrative is around, we work with Catholics and Christians in, in, in this kind of symbiotic ecumenical approach. Uh, but in that effort, then they hide all their uh, 
nefarious activities. And, and that's, I think, one of the biggest uh, purposes behind these Islamic cultural centers. We've heard about these Islamic cultural centers uh, popping up throughout Latin America. There's more than 100 uh, Iran state-sponsored Shia Islamic centers in Latin America. And uh, one of the things that they're doing is trying to legitimize the presence of Shia Islam in Latin America in saying that it's an ally of Christians and Catholics, play, almost playing off the ignorance that some Latin Americans have about what Iran's done to Christians in the Middle East. Uh, and I think that that's part of this effort to fight back is we have to educate the Christian community uh, and even the Catholic community in Latin America that uh, Iran might not talk like this, but it's very distant from the reality of what they've done in their country or in their neighborhood. And, and I think Iran's biggest advantage in this is the ignorance that many Latin Americans have about the Middle East and about what Iran has done in that part of the world. So I think this is, they play on this ignorance and they, they basically project it through these false narratives. And I'll give you a great example. I mean, what they've done in over Christmas, you know, they, they've uh, held webinars. Some of these Islamic centers have held webinars in Latin America about how uh, the virtues of the Virgin Mary are, are symbiotic to how uh, Shia Islam treats women and that women are a prominent role in Shia Islam. And they had a panel full of women uh, um, um, Iranian women that were, would be uh, talking to Latin Americans in Spanish. So th these are the kind of things that we have to uh, fight up against. And, and it's really a challenge of education. A lot of Latin Americans, they, once they realize what Iran truly does and truly is, they uh, quickly distance themselves, even within these Lebanese populations. Once they realize that how this is actually working, they quickly look to, to create a wedge between Iran and Hezbollah in Latin America. It's just not happening uh, at enough, it's not having quick enough and in enough volume. All right, and one last question. Uh, Mike asks, with the Biden administration in power for three more years, does Iran feel this is the time to move on the U.S., specifically by placing strategic weapons in Cuba and Nicaragua? So uh, a few weeks ago, um, I think it was literally at the beginning of the year, uh, there was the inauguration in Nicaragua of uh, a dictator, essentially uh, someone that's uh, violated their own constitution, violated all the democratic norms in their country, uh, jailed the entire political opposition that was trying to run for president, and uh, won a sham election in, in Nicaragua uh, for its fourth term. This I'm referring to Daniel Ortega, uh, the, the so-called president of Nicaragua. Uh, and so he was inaugurated uh, for his fourth term in uh, early January. At his inauguration, the Iranian uh, Vice President for Economic Affairs, Moshin Rezai, who everyone familiar with because he's a longstanding member of the Iranian regime, he was a former IRGC officer, and he was also involved and implicated in the 94 army attack in Argentina. He was prominently at this inauguration, and that created a, quite a stir because, uh, A, he's got an a, a Interpol red notice, meaning that his passport should be uh, frozen once he arrives in any other country outside of Iran, uh, and B, he has an international arrest warrant from Argentina. But Iran made a very strategic calculation in sending Rezai to the inauguration of Daniel Ortega, and he didn't go direct, I mean, it's a long flight, so he went to Mauritania in, in Africa, West Africa, went to Venezuela, then went to uh, Nicaragua, then went to Cuba, and then went back to, to Iran. And what Iran made in that strategic calculation was A, well, they know that Nicaragua is not going to do anything about it. They know Nicaragua is a friend, so they're going to welcome him and they're going to apply it. It's going to be very public. 
They also knew that the Argentine government was going to do much about this, even though that they're the ones that should have been most active about this because it's their arrest warrant. It was their country that was attacked in the 90s, and it's their justice system that needs to be in play. But the current Argentine government under Alberto Fernandez and Christina Kirchner is sympathetic to Iran, even if they don't say so. Uh, and so because of that, they did very little to try to apprehend this individual uh, in, while he was in Nicaragua. But I think they also made the calculation that the U.S. government was going to do very little to put the pressure necessary to be able to uh, a, uh, uh, apprehend Rezai, uh, but also to uh, send him to Argentina to, to serve uh, at least uh, just to be able to present his case before the Argentine authorities for the 94 attack. And I think Iran made that calculation based on the, the, their, their awareness that the Biden administration was not going to do anything or at least nothing meaningful. And the Argentine administration was complicit or incompetent to be able to pursue justice in this case. So that's kind of a, a long-winded answer to be able to say that I think Iran is absolutely going to capitalize on this moment, and they already are. In fact, everything that we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine um, that's happening right now along the borders, the, the, the leverage that Putin's using to be able to advance inside Ukraine is what I call the Latin America leverage because of what he's doing inside Venezuela on the borders with Colombia. Iran is one step behind him and moving in conjunction with him, uh, which is why I think we saw Rezai uh, go to Moscow over the last week. And we're you know, hearing these rumors of a, a nuclear agreement that Russia has already facilitated with Iran that is being uh, now presented to the, to, to in, in the talks in Vienna. And, and I think Iran and Russia and Iran and China have a common uh, understanding, even though they have many differences historically, culturally, and whatnot, but they have a common understanding of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and that's no truer than, than anywhere in the world than in Latin America, where, where they have uh, understand that the United States is the big big enemy, and, and they will not stop uh, working together until they can defeat it. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, these next couple of years are going to be very, very uh, intense on that front because they see the signs of weakness from the Biden administration. Thank you so much. And before we go, can you just tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? I put the uh, the website for Secure Free Society into our chat. Absolutely. Well, first, this. yeah, absolutely. Thank you again uh, for inviting me. Thank you to the Millers Forum. Always uh, an honor to be a fellow with with the forum and, and to continue to to collaborate on these issues. Uh, the work that I've done, you could first you could find a lot of it on the Middle East Forum website. The, the writings that I've done uh, that's been published uh, with the forum. Uh, but you can also find uh, our work at the Center for Secure Free Society's website. I think you just posted in the chat, securefreesociety.org. And actually, I encourage everyone to subscribe to our YouTube channel because we're going to be doing a lot more video products this year. One of the things, the big lessons of the pandemic is uh, you need a lot more digital content, including videos. And so we have gotten much more active on that. We actually just put out a video uh, recently called Border Wars. And this one features a bit more Russia. And what Russia's what I was mentioning, what Russia's doing with the Maduro regime in Venezuela on the Colombia-Venezuela border. But future episodes will also feature Iran. And I could tell you there's one already in the works about uh, an Iran Hezbollah hotbed on the Colombia-Venezuela border in a city called Maikau, which is an important city that you guys should all pay attention to. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Secure Free Society, and you'll see a lot of our products and obviously at our website, securefreesociety.org, and also with the Middle East Forum. All right. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Mr. Humeyer, for speaking with us today. Thank you, Stacey.
course. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.